Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 55. My name is Christopher Luff. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we're going to be chatting with the one and only Matt Bromley about some cutting-edge intel coming out of the Lima Charlie community Slack channel. Another week, another set of bad actors, malicious files, and compromised systems. We're back once again to talk about some of the cutting-edge intel being shared by our awesome community in the Lima Charlie Slack channel. And a huge thank you to all those folks that take the time to share their knowledge with the rest of us. And as always, for these chats, I'm joined by the one and only Matt Bromley. How are you doing today, Matt? Hey, Chris. I'm doing good, sir. I'm doing good. It's the week after Hacker Summer Camp, which I mean, I'm supposed to say, I guess I'm recovering from Vegas. But I definitely didn't have a stint as long as others, but it was a fantastic time. And, uh, you know, I, I'm doing great this week. So far, so good. The weather finally cooled down a little bit. Yeah. And as you said, it's been a pretty exciting month uh, for the team here at Lima Charlie. A big portion of us were down presenting at Black Hat, where we announced a new feature we're calling BinLib. BinLib is a private repository that can be used to track executables observed in an organization's environment allowing users to create their own private repository of organization-specific executions. This repository can then be used for searching, tagging, and other operations. Is there anything I'm missing in my description here, Matt? Uh, it's a great overview. Uh, BinLib or, or Binary Library is something we're really excited about. We've already got a few users that have kind of jumped on it, Chris, and, and it's been a great addition to the, some of the services we offer here. Uh, the only other thing I would add is that we've also got Yara scanning built in. So, I mean, for any of you out there in like a CTI role or, you know, IR or threat hunting or anything along those lines, I mean, sock monitoring, really any blue team role whatsoever, uh, we've got a new feature for you. Come over and check it out. Awesome. All righty, let's get to it. First one today is coming to us from Fortinet Labs, who recently discovered a new injector written in Rust that is used to inject shell code and introduce XWorm into a victim's environment. While Rust is relatively uncommon in malware development, several campaigns have adopted this language since 2019, including Bure Loader, Hive, and Ransom X. FortiGuard Labs analysis also revealed a significant increase in injector activity during May 2023, where the shellcode can be encoded with Base64 and can choose from encryption algorithms such as AES, RC4, or LZMA to evade antivirus detection. By examining the encoded algorithms and API names, researchers were able to identify the origin of this new injector in the red team tool freeze.rs, which is designed to create payloads able to bypass EDR security controls. They also discovered the SkyCryptor, a tool commonly used to deliver malware families via Discord that was involved in loading Remcos, a sophisticated remote access trojan that can be used to control and monitor devices running Windows. The researchers also observed phishing email activity on July 13th that initiated an, initiated an attack chain using a malicious PDF file. This file redirects to an HTML file and utilizes the search MS protocol to access an LNK file on a remote server. Upon clicking the LNK file, a PowerShell script executes freeze.rs and sitecryptor for further offensive actions. Eventually, XWorm and Remcos are loaded and communication with the C2 server is established. This attack chain seems very complex and I couldn't help but notice the inclusion of the search MS vulnerability we talked about last week. It seems like there would be lots of opportunities to catch this before persistence was gained. Any thoughts on this one, Matt? And was there any behavioral stuff we could think about building defenses against here? Yeah, I gotta say the the amount of time it took for you to describe that campaign was itself the most interesting part. There's just so many moving pieces to this thing, you know. Uh, you know, malware created in, in Rust. We've got all sorts of uh, loaders and droppers and C2 servers, and, and I remember reading through kind of the attack 
approach here or the way that the initial inspection took place. There was all sorts of things as a cryptor and injector, decoy files, downloads. I mean, it, is, it really goes into kind of like the sheer capacity and configuration that goes into, you know, some of these campaigns that we see out there. And, and sometimes at the end of the day, you know, they're just deploying a malware and wait for someone to buy it up or, or use it. So it becomes that kind of as a service thing that we've talked about before. From a behavioral and detection perspective, you know, I, I think you did mention, uh, as we talked about in a previous episode as well, the search MS vulnerability. I think looking for detections across that and especially LNK files and whatnot are, are a good defensive thing for uh, for defenders to put into place from a detection perspective. I think there's some quick wins there because there's some pretty uh, dead or typical recognized behavior. And the other thing, too, is to also think about what triggers what or the sequence of events. So, for example, you know, and in this blog post, which hats off to FortiGuard Labs, because this is a lengthy read, but it is very well documented, very technical, which is awesome to see. You know, they talk about kind of that approach of a malicious PDF file redirecting to an HTML, utilizing SearchMS to access a link. Upon clicking a link, a PowerShell script, and then that leads to, you know, freeze RS. I mean, there's just so many different steps along the way. The way to think about detections for a chain like this is how early on can I start to detect this type of activity? And with what fidelity can I go after that, right? So LNK files, for example, they're not inherently bad. They're widely used across Windows operating systems. And everyone who's ever used Windows has used LNK files, whether you know it or not. So it's really tough to say, all right, all LNKs are bad, right? But is there a thing that the LNKs are doing that I could perhaps wrap some, you know, wrap some knowledge around? Or is it an LNK file coming from a remote location? So I think reading through posts like this and then looking for those tiny little like, okay, this isn't bad unless you do this thing, that's a detection. You know, uh, LNK files, not bad. On a remote server, bad. LNK file, not bad. One that loads a PowerShell script, probably bad. So like the little ands and ors that you throw in there are where you get a chance for some solid detection. Next one we got is from Unit 42 at Powell Alto Networks. They were reporting on a Sugar CRM zero day, also known as CBE 2023 22952. This authentication bypass and remote code execution vulnerability might seem like a typical exploit, but there is actually more for defenders to be aware of. During the past year, Unit 42 responded to multiple cases where the Sugar CRM was the initial attack vector and allowed threat actors to gain access to AWS accounts. This was not due to a vulnerability in AWS and could have happened in any cloud environment. Instead, threat actors took advantage of misconfiguration, and I'm guessing likely default configurations to expand their access after the initial compromise. Because it's a web application, if Sugar CRM is not configured or secured correctly, the infrastructure behind the scenes can allow attackers to increase their impact. When a threat actor understands the underlying technology used by cloud service providers, they can accomplish a great deal if they gain access to credentials that have the right permissions. The complexity of these attacks shows how it is important to set your logging and monitoring to detect unauthorized AWS API calls. Were you able to look at the attack chain here, Matt? And besides logging API calls, is there anything else defenders should be thinking about when trying to secure their cloud infrastructure against attacks like this? Yeah, Chris, this is, a, again, another really well-written article. I'm just, I love when we get like really technical, well-written articles that show just behind the scenes how things happen. And instead of just saying like, oh, the attacker moved laterally, they go through in detail how that happened. And, and this is another example of, because it lets us as defenders really think about like, well, what are some things that I can do? You know, what are some things that I can look at defending against? And you're right, logging is, is going to be one of the first cases there. 
Although this is an interesting article because, in my opinion, the scope of securing these things, if you will, right, doesn't necessarily lie with just the security team in this case. And I think an article like this or a threat like this actually really opens the door for a security team and a dev team to have a discussion, if they haven't already, about what happens when we deploy things, cloud or not, on-prem or not, you know, regardless of the name of the vendor or the piece of software or whatever. I think this article opens up, you know, doors that may not have been opened before about, hey, what are we doing when we deploy these types of web applications, you know? And this gets into discussion, and Chris, I think you hit the nail right on the head. Are you misconfiguring it, or did you not change the default configuration? Because a lot of times, those get blended into the same statement. And I think you called it out correct by like, ah, it feels a lot like here, you know? There could have been a really good chance for a security team and a development team to get together and say, hey, what are our default best practices? What are some things that we should be doing? And how can we secure these things from the get-go? You know, and don't get me wrong. If there's some sort of zero day announced that takes advantage of a thing or a protocol or a script or whatever, you know, that no one knew about beforehand, obviously security team then is is working with everyone to respond, you know, but deploying a well-known application or one that has had some vulnerabilities before and not changing the default config or leaving ports open that don't need to be, leaving accounts enabled that don't need to be, whatever the misconfiguration might be, you know, it leads to, again, exactly what you called out. This is not just a web app compromise. It then becomes a cloud infrastructure compromise. And this is where it gets tough because a lot of folks may, not a lot, I should say, but folks may get their AWS account compromised or parts of their AWS infrastructure compromised. And everyone turns around and like, oh, well, why doesn't AWS protect me? And it's like, the onus actually started with the web app. So I think a good lesson, a good takeaway from me is that. And I always like to remind people that, you know, all these cloud services are meant to be easy to get going. And so the default configurations are meant to make your experience good, but it doesn't mean it's secure. So it's always good to go read through the documentation and make sure you understand what you're putting out there before you push it into production. Chris, you call out one of the most important things about hosting your infrastructure with a cloud provider, which is, it is, you know, a lot of times their job to keep the application up. The SLAs are uptime. They are not security. <laughs> Don't confuse the two. Yeah. All right. So the next one we're going to look at is from the Zscaler Threat Labs team who discovered an information stealer family they are calling Static Stealer which is a sophisticated malware that infects devices powered by Windows, gains access to computer systems, and steals sensitive information. This article has a great technical breakdown, but the key takeaways are Static Stealer can grab information from various web browsers, including login data, cookies, web data, and preferences. Additionally, it has focus capabilities aimed at cryptocurrency wallets, credentials, passwords, and even data from messaging apps like Telegram. The stealer is written in C++ and performs file name discrepancy checks to inhibit sandbox detection and reverse engineering analysis by researchers. It targets the Windows operating system and is predominantly focused on browsers running in that environment. And it also uses HTTPS encryption to implement its C2 infrastructure. Matt, we've been talking about info stealers every week this year, and this static stealer seems to be pretty technical. Is this a sign that threat actors are leaning into this method of compromise? Are we going to continue to see this type of malware evolve? Good question, Chris. And it's funny, this malware in some cases actually reads like a report from a little bit earlier in time, 
you know, the malware written in C++. And I'm not, I'm not picking on C++ in general. I'm just saying, you know, it's funny because two malware discussions ago, we were talking about Rust and delivery via Discord and all sorts of, you know, really complex LNK, MS search, PDFs, hosted files. I mean, it was this crazy long story stuff. And then you find that some adversaries out there are still finding success by just relying on typical old C++ and HTTPS for their comms, you know? And I think that is probably just a sign of what the malware authors are capable of doing or how they prefer to write in things and whatnot. The biggest evolution that I think we're going to continue to see in info stealers in general is going to be the targeting of cryptocurrencies and crypto wallets and whatnot. You know, anyone who's listening to this obviously has the their own opinions on cryptocurrencies and, and kind of what they mean and what's out there and whatnot. But let's be clear, there's still a lot of money if you can steal that and steal someone else's information. So this is no longer just stealing browser passwords or, you know, trying to copy something out of the clipboard or anything like that. You know, this is targeting wallets that may have actual money behind them. And where it gets tricky here, and I'm assuming a lot of our listeners probably know this as well, where it gets tricky here is the moment I've got access to a wallet, that money's gone. I mean, we're not talking like, oh, maybe, you know, my bank will hold on to it till midnight or whatever, you know? And I think where you see info stealers progressing is really going after quick win monetary or quick monetary wins if they can. Um, cryptocurrency wallets, I think. And it's nothing new necessarily, but I, I do find it to be, you know, an interesting shift over the past maybe year or two of, you know, adversaries looking for these particular things. And I got to say, the other add on here that I found interesting was that it was also configured to steal data from messaging apps like Telegram. And that uh, breaks it a little bit out of a web browser stealer and more into the role of just a straight up stealer of a bunch of different things that people wouldn't really want to have out there. You know, and of course, I always think about kind of the adversary motive here. Telegram is used for a variety of purposes, uh, sometimes to, you know, shield journalists or protect identities and things like that. But Chris, the other thing is there are also Telegram groups that do things like deliver stock updates or telegram clubs that, you know, or, or, you know, I should say maybe stock clubs that utilize telegram to promote information about, Hey, you know, buys and sells highs and lows, cryptocurrency gains, uh, suggesting investor advice and things like that. And that may be another target here where you've got adversaries saying, Hey, people are receiving really clutch information inside of telegram. Sometimes people are using it to hide identities or be anonymous or be safe. Other times people are using it to try and make extra money and they want all that information as well. And, and I'm sure other apps outside of Telegram probably fall victim to this too. But I think it just goes to show that adversaries understand where the value is and they're making a shift towards that particular data. Yeah. And they know that people assume that is a very secure channel. So it's very opportunistic in the sense that they just want to see what's going on and maybe there's something else that they can use to to launch another attack. Absolutely. Yeah, I think you called that one right. It's uh that that's the change. That's the shift is understanding what's valuable to users today and going after that information. All right. This one is from nine to five Mac.com, who is reporting on security researcher Patrick Wardle, who presented his discovery of a macOS malware background task manager flaw at DEF CON this year. MacOS has a number of built-in tools to detect malware with the background task manager added to the list of defenses last year. However, Patrick's research says that this can be easily bypassed and that Apple failed to act on his recommendation to fix it. 
For those that may not know, Apple has three layers of protection against Mac malware. First, it seeks to prevent installation of malware. It does this by vetting apps in the Mac App Store and uses several mechanisms to ensure that all other apps are signed by a recognized developer. Second, if malware makes it through this layer, it uses something they're calling XProtect to recognize malware and block it from running. XProtect is a signature-based detection and malware and removal system that uses Yara signatures, which Apple updates regularly. Third, even if the malware has run once, Apple seeks to prevent it doing so in the future. The company frequently updates XProtect to look for newly identified malware, and Apple last year introduced a background task manager which looks for the most dangerous form of malware, apps that persist. In the article, Patrick outlines three different ways that the alerts can be bypassed in this third layer. One of them requires root access, but two do not. One of these methods kills the security alerts by interrupting communication between the kernel and the alerting system. The other capitalizes on capability that allows users, even those without deep system privileges, to put processes to sleep. He says he chose to go public without the support of Apple because he says the background task manager currently offers a false sense of security to users and companies alike. What do you think of this move, Matt? Is it making us safer? And will this move affect Patrick's career in any way, either from potential employers or directly from the wrath of Apple? Well, I'm going to say to that last question, I certainly hope not. Although, uh, you know, I'm not really too sure about Apple's track record for going after folks who disclose vulnerabilities and things, but I certainly hope not. Huge hats off to Patrick for uh, kind of performing this research and sharing this with everyone. Look, I, I can't speak to the process that he went through with Apple, and I can't speak to kind of, you know, what Apple's ultimate decision was on all of this and, and whatnot. And I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, sometimes we do see that process kind of called out. And you do see, you know, oh, this isn't really a bug or this isn't really a vulnerability. And then you go and fix it silently on the background and, you know, just don't give credit and stuff like that. We've seen that happen with software vendors before. But let's move past that and just say that, you know, I think Patrick kind of disclosing this to everyone is a huge benefit because it does open up the idea, Chris, that you and I have been talking about for for many months now on this show has been the idea that our Macs inherently safe. Macs don't get viruses, so there's nothing to worry about, right? That's uh, that's kind of the old the adage that's been passed around for a long time. And I think research like this goes a long way to show that an operating system is a collection of code designed by humans, right? And as much as we try, sometimes you'll come across inherent vulnerabilities and things that can be taken advantage of. And I think coming out and being like, hey, I think this is a thing that needs to be fixed. And here I can prove that it feels or looks or seems broken, you know, is, is a huge benefit to everyone because it does shine light on something that might need to be fixed. Now, of course, I know plenty of folks out there who will argue the opposite and will say that, you know, ah, we shouldn't be disclosing stuff. It gives adversary a chance to use it, weaponize it, so on and so forth. And I don't know, I'm kind of in that lane, Chris, of like, well, what if we didn't know about it? Would the adversary still find out? And I feel like a lot of times they would. I would argue that we find out about vulnerabilities and exploits and non-standard capabilities from adversaries significantly more than we do from from researchers, uh, at least on a public scale. So I would rather say, I would rather have researchers finding this stuff for us. And I would rather have those folks coming out and being like, hey, this is the thing that needs to be fixed, whether y'all want to fix it or not, because it lets us go on and you know write detections and look for certain things and say, hey, even if the software vendor isn't going to help me, I'll find a way to help myself, which is good. So I hope there's no repercussions for this. I'm assuming he gave the talk at DEFCON uh, that it, there aren't any 
I've seen plenty of talks at DEF CON get shut down with gag orders and things like that. So I don't think we're seeing one in this case. But uh, that being said, you know, Patrick, thanks again. We appreciate your work and everyone here is a little bit smarter, a little bit safer because of it. Yeah, I only brought up the wrath of Apple because I remember probably close to a decade ago, somebody had uh, acquired a uh, iPhone prototype, which ended up in the SWAT team coming through their front door. So I, I'm not making any assumptions about what Apple's going to do, but I do know that they play very seriously oh, yeah. when it comes to their IP. Hey, don't get me wrong. You know, you're you're not you're not wrong. And the thing is, the retaliation that we get, and this is something you know worth worth digging into. We do see this happen in security industry a lot. You know, sometimes it, it's very very quiet behind the scenes. That's kind of the example I gave, where someone discovers a thing, and, and the company with the vulnerability or the vendor with the vulnerability just doesn't feel like you know honoring that find, if you will, and they just quickly patch it and move on. And then it's like, well, here we go. And then you know, I'm assuming everyone's probably seen those X threads or uh, you know. Uh, whatever types of threads that might be out there, uh, you see them on you know various various apps, various social media, Slack threads, channels, discords, all kinds of stuff. Where someone's kind of like, "Hey, I found a vulnerability. I reported it properly. I disclosed it the right way, and I didn't get the thing that I was looking for." And that's where we get great companies like Hacker One and whatnot who kind of set up a formality around these processes and make this part a little bit easier. But then the flip side of that is there's also plenty of times where the best they try those bug bounty companies. You know, they set up a, a program in place, but the vendor still won't recognize it. You know, and I think, Chris, to your point, there, there, there can be various forms of retaliation here, and some of them, unfortunately, and if you think, you know, four or six months down the line, right? Let's just say hypothetically, Apple goes and patches this thing silently on the background or makes the update that needs to be made, and it never gets weaponized. It never ever gets turned into an adversarial technique. It was simply a thing a researcher found. It was caught, quote unquote, in time, and then was passed before it was ever weaponized. Well, if it was never weaponized, was it bad? You know. But then I would go the other route, and I would say, if if we if Patrick didn't disclose it, would it have ever been discovered by anyone else another way? Could it have been weaponized for years, and he just didn't know about it, or you know, we didn't know that it was out there? So to my point there, you know, a form of retaliation might just be, we're not even going to give you credit. We're not even going to let your research live for longer than a month. You know, that's got to be, I think, the most kind of disheartening type of retaliation is where a vendor won't even recognize your years of research, but they'll just simply patch it and say, yeah, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, and I think that's where it gets a little tough uh, from kind of a like cold shoulder perspective. But again, I think, you know, we'll see what happens as this story unfolds. I will offer maybe one final caveat here. There are plenty of vendors who have kind of dismissed vulnerabilities as they come through and then later turn around and are like, you know what? We actually kind of reassessed this, took it seriously. Hopefully that, that's the kind of case we'll see here. What we don't want to have is a researcher disclosing something that then the vendor turns around and just argues to the nail. This was never a thing, never out there, blah, blah. And then it becomes a really nasty back and forth. You know, my fear, I guess, is centered around what I've learned about the early days of bug reporting, where sometimes companies would even come at researchers with like lawsuits and, and just yep, be exactly. so over the top. Yeah, you're right. No, you're 100% right. It's it's definitely something to watch out for. And, and don't forget, too, if you don't have a formal bug bounty program in place and someone's poking around your site looking for weaknesses, you don't know the difference between them and an actual adversary. 
And that's where it gets a little tricky. And some organizations end up taking it very personally, Chris, is, you know, hey, you're out here poking around yourself. It's like, oh, I'm looking for weaknesses. And it's like, yeah, okay, let's, let's, let's make this kinetic, right? You would drive up to your house and there's someone kind of trying to shove a crowbar through the window and you get out of your car. Hey, what are you doing, buddy? You know? And it's like, hey, man, I, I work in my own security company. I'm self-employed. I do this for free on the weekend. I'm just checking to see if your windows are loose. You know, and if they are, I was going to tell you about it. And it's like, you can see how it feels and gets really personal really quickly, you know? So I think, uh, you know, you, you bring up a really good point, which is, you know, companies sometimes handle these things and retrospectively what feels and looks like the wrong way. But in the moment, you know, there's definitely that emotional moment where it's like, you know, hey, hey, just an FYI, I was poking around and I found some weaknesses. Like, well, dude, what the heck? You know, like, what are you doing here? So if, if we take away the kinetic example, the digital one almost feels a little silly. But at the same time, um, you know, remember that there's someone out there who wrote that code that they thought was pretty safe and secure. And they hear you come along poking and prodding. It's not the best response, but sometimes the responses do get emotional. Yeah, that that's a great way to frame it. It actually gives me a different perspective on the whole thing because, yeah, exactly. If I saw somebody at my front door poking around, I'd, I'd, the emotions would be very strong. You, you you would not be giving them the benefit of the doubt. That's for sure. You know, hey, man, I test this stuff in my free time. Don't, you know, just uh, <laughs> they, they ignore me. And it's like, uh, I don't know about all that. And, and don't get me wrong. Uh, let me, I'm sorry. Let me offer one more point of clarification here. I have a massive amount of respect and appreciation for folks who spend their times or have developed careers around bug bounties and vulnerability disclosures. I think you make us all safer at the end of the day. What I'm asking maybe everyone to do is to consider that sometimes the response to these types of things can get a little emotional. And the best thing to do is obviously just let cooler heads prevail. And, you know, if, if a legal party gets involved and whatnot, then we'll obviously handle it as it comes through. But in cases like this, uh, the techno geek slash, you know, longtime DEF CON attendee in me says, represent, show that data, show that research. That's what we all want to see. How did you get from point A to point B to find this thing? We all know big corporations are going to be big corporations. Patrick, thank you for sharing what you shared because the journey is what we all want to learn about. And you shared that with us. Awesome. Yeah. Shout out to Patrick. Okay. Uh, the last one today, the fine folks at CISA are reporting on the C-SPY and Whirlpool backdoors after obtaining malware samples from a compromised device. The device was compromised when threat actors exploited CDE-2023-2868, a former zero-day affecting particular versions of the Barracuda email security gateway. CSPY is a persistent and passive backdoor that masquerades as a legitimate Barracuda service named Barracuda Mail Service, which allows the threat actors to execute arbitrary commands on the ESG appliance. And Whirlpool is a backdoor that establishes a TLS reverse shell to the command and control server. The CISA notice provides some YAR rules for detecting these malware and links to some more technical breakdowns of the malware itself. Is this something that defenders should be aware of in general? And is this the type of slow and low malware we expect from APTs? I'll tell you, if you got Barracuda in your environment, you should definitely be paying attention. And I'm assuming if so, you've likely gone through the recommended, you know, defensive or patchy mechanism that you should have, that you should have in place, I should say. Uh, yeah, no, Chris, this is another one that goes right down the line of if this is something you have in your environment, then you absolutely, by all means, you know, need to go there and, and patch and be careful and watch out for this type of thing. 
Um, as you and I have talked about multiple times before, and as we've seen happen before as well, it, you know, it's one step away from an adversary scanning the internet for all the Barracuda devices they can possibly find. This is an email security gateway. This is likely a perimeter or internet-facing device, absolutely. So this will end up being something that you can go profile. You can go look through and say, hey, is this thing out there? Is there anyone reporting in? How do I find it? So on and so forth. And in fact, I did a really quick search against Shodan right before we got onto this podcast episode here. And sure enough, there's a Barracuda-style search or there's a recognition of Barracuda technologies from a Shodan perspective. So we're, you know, again, we're just out there with a, if someone has the right search terms, they can go and find these things. And if it's not patched, if it's in an older version, if it's in a vulnerable version, if you will, we're going to end up with a compromise, unfortunately. Chris, your question about kind of that low and slow approach, it really feels that way, doesn't it? It feels that way where we've got kind of these really well-developed pieces of malware that have some interesting, uh, you know, kind of characteristics to them. Um, you know, CSpy, for example, is a 64-bit ELF file. Um, you know, again, speaking towards what the adversaries are capable of doing, what they're able to do, they're, you know, constructing 64-bit malware. For the particular Linux subsystem or operating system that the Barracuda environments are using, I find that to, you know, Linux malware isn't new. But what I think this does show is the dedication of a group who was able to go through and analyze the way that this Barracuda software is put together or the way that the operating system is put together and taking advantage of it. And if you may notice, and I think you may have mentioned this too, Chris, that the malware was actually based on an open source program named C-Door with the O's in the door being zeros in this case. And that, again, just goes to show adversaries who had kind of a starting point, they had a boilerplate, went and modified it for the thing that they were targeting, Barracuda ESGs, and then were able to use that for some nefarious purposes afterwards. Definitely doesn't feel like a smash and grab, you know, or a basic info stealer in this case, as we've talked about. This feels a lot more like someone who knew what they were getting into and said, you know, I need to have a piece of malware that goes after certain types of things. I mean, we got malware here with libpcap capabilities that can examine network traffic, you know, and I think it's important, again, to just understate and say, yes, if you got Barracuda in your environment or you work for an environment that has Barracuda in it, definitely need to know about this. Get those things patched, get uh, defensive mechanisms implemented the best you can. And I'll go a step further. If you take the uh, citizens indicators or the Yara signatures, and run them against your environment, and you get a pop, you get a positive hit, call an IR company or activate your IR processes because you want to understand the scope of these intrusions if they did happen. So yet another kind of internet-facing device or appliance vulnerability, one that should be dealt with relatively quickly. Yeah, and I'm always curious about the secondary fallout from this, where CISA publishes this, the threat actor goes on to Shodan, finds a bunch of email servers that fit the bill, and how long does it take them to exploit that exploit? It's a known CVE. They know this device is vulnerable. What do you think the turnaround time on a piece of code to deploy something onto those devices would be? Yeah, that's a great question. And in this case, I think it depends on just how complex. And Chris, I'll be full disclosure for our listeners here. I haven't read through if it's available. I haven't read through entirely how it is kind of constructed here and what i mean by that for everyone is i don't know if this is malware that takes advantage of the way that the barracuda 
services or the way that the operating system, if it's a subsystem or whatever the thing may be, if there's a way for kind of, if, if that's where the exploit is, right? If, if that's where the, the advantage is. Um, so for example, you know, it, it's a zero day vulnerability announced by CISA. Uh, it is a vulnerability of the Veritude email security gateway. All right. So the folks out there listening, there's a couple of things to consider here. When, when the vulnerability gets announced, is it a vulnerability that allows an adversary on the box? Okay. And what I mean by that is, is it a vulnerability that allows them to get initial access on that system? But then they've got to shift over to kind of like, you know, tried and true techniques, right? So they get on the system and this is where we see the use of open source backdoors like C doors we saw here. This is where you see the use of those types of things where it's a novel entry vector, but everything past the entry vector becomes kind of standard or open source or dealer's choice style malware if you want, right? So that's the entry vector side of it. And I think that's probably what we're seeing in this case, just based on the way the reports are and, and based on the, on the malware side of it. The other type of thing that is an important consideration when we look at these types of vulnerabilities is, is it also a vulnerability of the way that the Barracuda software works on that particular system? So for example, in this particular piece of malware, there is, you know, it, it's a persistent and passive backdoor that masquerades as a legitimate Barracuda service that allows threat actors to execute arbitrary commands on the appliance. Well, all I hear there, all I'm hearing about is this is a persistent service that looks a lot like Barracuda, but it actually isn't. So this is just hiding in plain sight, which again would lead me to believe someone got access to Barracuda ESGs and is now just trying to blend in. So the vulnerability itself is probably initial access or probably you know the exploit that gets you on the system. But then you got to kind of take over from there from an adversarial perspective. I'll give you the other side of this, right? The other side of this coin is the software that's running on the server or on the appliance, it itself is vulnerable for a later stage technique. So again, I'm speaking hypothetically here, Chris, you get on initial access, lets you on the system, and then you exploit Barracuda to harvest credentials or something like that, right? Let's just pick that because it's an easy one. Back to your original question. How easy is it to mass weaponize these types of things? It depends on the complexity of the exploit. If it's an initial access exploit, probably going to happen pretty fast. Someone somewhere is going to figure it out. And the way that you do this is you look, hey, here's an unpatched version. Here's a patched version. What changed in between those two things? And you go on your reverse engineer and figure out, all right, you know, this library change or whatever. That's where you go make your changes. Then an exploit comes out pretty quickly. You know, if the patch that comes down is something that's maybe a little bit harder to reverse engineer or not so apparent as to what's happening there, I think you'll see a slower time for these to come out. But then of course, if this thing has been actively exploited in the wild, well, then we're really subjected to that threat group or that threat actor or that malware developer or that exploit developer and keeping their mouth shut. And not telling everyone what the uh, what the issue is. That was a very very long winded answer to say that in some cases. And I want to I want to justify this and explain it for our listeners here, which is when you see these things announced as a defender, one of the first things for you to think about is where in that attack chain does this vulnerability actually kick in, because it helps you think about where your detections are going to be the strongest. You know, and someone comes to you and says, "Hey." 
that appliance you've got is extremely vulnerable. There's a zero day out there. But the adversary is using an open source backdoor. I'd be like, well, hold on a second now. Here, my, 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 my concern level, it, it, it's still elevated, but it just went down a little bit because it's an initial access vulnerability. I can still look for the other things on the system that an adversary is going to leave and drop behind. As opposed to, there's a zero-day vulnerability that lets the adversary disable all security software and subvert the kernel instructions. You know what I mean? See how much more severe it gets when the vulnerability is like the actual runtime itself and not just the way in. So anyways, long-winded answer, but I think it really depends. And, uh, you know, that's uh, maybe a 101 101 breakdown on what a zero-day actually means for our listeners as well is sometimes it's just someone has a new way to break in the door, but it's the same house when they get there. Yeah. Appreciate that, Matt. It was long-winded, but a lot of, a lot of kernels of uh, <laughs> wisdom in there. Well, Chris, and- our listeners know, and you know, I'm not one for short answers. So I'm happy to, to walk through it. Yeah, no, I, I love to see what comes out of our conversations and appreciate you being here again this week. I think we had some good stuff and uh, look forward to doing it again next week. As always, Looking forward to it. And uh, one more shout out for uh, folks who we may have met or interacted with at Blackout. Thank you for coming by. It was great to see you there. Love new folks. Thank you to our Intel channel, as always, for keeping us up to date. And keep those uh, keep those hits and keep those reports coming. Chris and I will be right back here next week doing it again. Awesome. Thank you, sir. Thanks, everyone. And that concludes episode number 55 of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.